unum, right? Out of the many, one. And our grand experiment as a nation, we have strived to make one nation out of many states, one people out of many nationalities. But how can we have unity in diversity? What would the basis of such unity consist of? Can secular humanism offer answers to the problem of unity and diversity? It's not just the society at large that suffers from disunity, but the same polarization is creeping into the church as well. People divide over political views even within the church. We divide over all kinds of issues, of course, but um, this also has profound impact on the family as well. So over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the theme of unity. And first, this week, we're going to be talking about the basis of our unity. Where can we find unity? Is it possible for us to be united as a church, which I believe it must begin here, and as families and individuals, and then, of course, leavening itself out into the broader society? Can we have unity? And what is the basis of that? And I'm not going to give a a normal exposition of Scripture. Normally, if you're with us, we're working through large portions of Scripture at a time. We've been currently going through the Gospel of John, um, but we'll be skipping around. So I want you to put your seatbelts on. We're going to be doing some systematic theology together, and, uh, and we're going to be looking at the basis for our unity in diversity. But to sort of kick us off, we're going to be looking at a text that's printed for you in the bulletin from John chapter 17, beginning at verse 20. Let me remind you that these are the very words of God. Jesus is in the middle of his high priestly prayer. He is uh, uh, very shortly going to be betrayed and led to the cross. And before he does this, he prays this prayer in the presence of his disciples that it's packed and loaded with deep theology. Right? And he is setting forth not only his uh, mission that he's about to accomplish, but he's giving direction for his disciples as well. So we're just going to read a few short verses from from chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. He's speaking about his disciples that are there gathered with him. He's praying to the Father, and he says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you, gathered here that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. These are the words of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, who sent your Son to reunite us with you, to bring us back into fellowship with you in that unity of God and man in the person of Jesus has affected that reconciliation. As we have just celebrated his incarnation and 
in the, in the holiday season of Christmas, and as we consider the unity that He has purchased with His own life to make us one, even as You and Him are one. And Father, we strive for that great unity. Show us the basis of it this morning as we consider Your own life and the way that You have shared it with us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless our meditation this morning. Prepare our hearts to receive Your Word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. and Amen. There is a philosophical problem that philosophers will often debate. It's called the problem of the one and the many. How many of you have heard of that problem? The one and the many. We are not just one people. We are a diverse people. There are not just one thing in the universe, one uh, substance, but there are many substances. The problem of the one and the many has been debated over the centuries. Essentially, it involves reconciling the existence of various objects or entities and phenomena in the universe with the idea of a single underlying reality or substance that brings them all together. The question penetrates the very core of our understanding of existence and reality, what we might call metaphysics. This philosophical dilemma tackles critical issues of identity. Our society is obsessed with identity, with diversity. We're also obsessed with diversity, but also of unity. And it prompts us to ponder what it means for something to be unique, for it to be an individual, but also connected as a whole. How do we account for such things? And it calls on us to investigate the limits of our individuality and the degree to which we, to which any entity can be distinct but still linked together as one. Where can we find unity in the midst of all of the diversity of this creation? What holds it all together? What gives it meaning and purpose? The problem of the one and the many also concerns how to articulate our relationships together between individual things and the collective that they belong to. It isn't only about understanding what defines individuals, but also explaining how they relate together, how they interact with each other, how they're connected in a wider reality that we all inhabit. At its core, the problem of the one and the many investigates the tension that exists between unity on the one hand and diversity on the other. It is a philosophical exploration seeking to comprehend how all of the diverse elements of our world that we live in, including all the diverse elements of us people, and how we can relate towards one another, how we can find unity together. Now, philosophers have approached this question through the lens of pure reason. They're trying to understand or identify this fundamental unifying principle that could also account for why there are so many things in the universe. However, their speculations often end up collapsing in on themselves, and they either tend towards one extreme or the other. They will either emphasize the oneness of everything, which will lead to something like pantheism, right? That is, the world is God. Everything that is in it is all connected and united together as one. 
that is leaning towards one extreme side. The other would be sort of a, a leaning towards the many category, and that would be towards pluralism. But as Christians, we believe that you cannot think yourself out of the problem of the one and the many. You can't think through reason alone. You need to rely on revelation to understand the diversity that is within God's creation and how it is all brought together as a unified whole. We must look to Scripture alone. And the only way to reconcile the problem of the many, one and the many, is the triune God of Scripture. He alone can free us from the problem and reconcile the one and the many together. Why? Because He is one and many together. God is one essence, but He's three distinct persons. We're going to be talking about the Trinity. And for many of you, this is a challenging topic. Some, it makes our heads hurt, right? It's difficult for us to reconcile how someone, some person can be one and yet three persons in one. How can they be united together, maintaining their distinctions and still be one? And you might, God is one in essence, but he's three distinct persons who are a community of relations and, and perfect unity. And although they share completely of that one divine essence and attributes, which we might call God, they also have their own distinct attributes that they do not share with one another. Notice in Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prays that all may be one just as you father are in me and I in you he delineates two distinct persons God the father and the son and yet they are one their unity does not collapse their differences their differences are maintained in that unity these are two distinct persons, and of course the Holy Spirit is also included. And I think the Athanasian Creed really articulates this well. Written, of course, in the 4th century, it says, Now this is the Catholic faith. Catholic, he means universal, not Roman Catholic, but the universal faith. We worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. But the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. As Christian truth compels us to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or three lords, the Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father. The Spirit was neither made nor created, but is proceeding from the Father and the Son. Thus there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three spirits, and in this trinity... No one is before or after. 
greater or less than the other, but all three persons are in themselves co-eternal and co-equal. And so we must worship the Trinity in unity and the one God in three persons. Whoever wants to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. Amen. What a succinct statement laying out for us the deep mystery of the Trinity, that God is one. There is no mixing together. There is no dividing them apart. We don't confess and, and believe in three different gods. We believe in one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father is not the Son. The Son alone is begotten of the Father. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son, but proceeds from them both. And those attributes of begottenness and procession and origins of the Father, those they maintain are their own distinct attributes. So we see that God is a triunity. He reconciles the problem of the one and the many because He is both one and many. He is Himself the unifying principle by which and for whom all things exist. Van Til, in his seminal work, The Defense of Faith, he said this, quote, Using the language of the one and many question, we contend that in God, the one and the many are equally ultimate. We do not privilege God's unity over His diversity. They are both ultimately fundamental. He continues and says, Unity in God is no more fundamental than diversity. And diversity in God is no more fundamental than unity. The persons of the Trinity are mutually exhaustive of one another. The Son and the Spirit are ontologically on par with the Father. They share the same essence. One God. And yet their distinct persons are maintained. And as a community of eternal relations, he also accounts for the particularity that we find in his creation. For the statement, God is love, to even make sense, C.S. Lewis draws our attention to this in Mere Christianity. For that statement, God is love, to even make sense, God must be a community of persons. He must be at least two, if not more, because how could he love if he did not have someone to set that love upon. You cannot have love properly speaking without relationship. God is a community of three distinct persons who share one unique essence. And that way, the statement God is love makes sense. Further, without the Father begetting the Son, how could we ever have a creation that is even remotely relatable to God? Now imagine if he could not make, if he could not beget his own son and live in relationship with someone else. How could he ever live in relationship with a creation that is outside of his own being? See, because God is an eternal unity in diversity and diversity in unity, there can also be a unity in diversity in his creation. We might call this a temporal Unity in diversity. Theologians often will call this the, the vestigia trinitas or the vestiges of the Trinity. We see it everywhere within creation. 
triads that demonstrate or point to the Trinity. Now, one important caveat, these vestiges do not prove the Trinity. We don't want to use analogies to uh, prove the Trinity that we find in creation in some sort of a mathematical or logical way, right? This is why it can be damaging, in fact, to use analogies to try to teach the Trinity, right? Like the three-leaf clover or the ice and the water and the vapor and the egg or any of those analogies you may have heard of, they all fall very, very far short of getting at the, the grasping the meaning the, of God is one in three persons. And so we need to be careful. Although we can see that echo throughout creation, we don't want to use the analogy to work backwards up to God. The analogy always teaches us something. Uh, God is teaching us something, and we're not learning. Uh, the, the better example would be, um, we do not learn something about God the Father by looking at ideal types of fatherhood. Sometimes this can be confusing to people, right? They think, well, God is a father, so I learn about God as father by the fatherly examples I have in this world. But that gets the analogy backwards. We learn something about fatherhood by looking at God and how he has revealed himself as father and his actions as father. We don't learn something about God by looking at fathers, and this isn't just because of sin. Of course, there, there are no ideal fathers because of sin, right? We all fall very far short. But even in the garden, before man had sinned, we wouldn't look at fatherhood in order for us to understand God. We would learn from God about what fatherhood entails. Does that make sense? We don't want to run the analogy the wrong way. We want it to run downward so that we learn something uh, from God about the analogy, not the other way around. God, we only learn about God from what he has revealed in his word and, in, and through creation, which testifies to him as well. Secular humanism often looks for unity in universal rights of humanity or sometimes in uh, scientific consensus. But, and this is often very pragmatic and seeks to balance unity and pluralism together. But there's, they really struggle to find a, a unifying principle. It often veers towards one or the other extreme. It either privileges unity with no diversity, and that promotes, of course, something like collectivism or a totalitarianism, right? Uh, by, by the way... That's exactly what Islam does, right? Islam is, Allah is one. He doesn't have a community of persons to love. It's not a religion of love. It's a religion of submission. That's what Islam means, submit, right? It's not a religion of love because Allah is not a communion of persons that love each other. And therefore, he cannot create a creation and love it in the same way. Allah is not Love and, and therefore it tends towards a unity with no diversity and it looks a lot like totalitarianism. But other times, secular humanism will veer towards diversity without unity. Then that's what we have in our postmodern culture. 
Our current culture preaches diversity as if it's the gospel. We are subjected to diversity training if you're in the corporate world. And moral relativisms, your truth, right? Everybody has their own truth. We all have a diversity of truths. And even it descends down into gender, right? It's all fluid. It can be whatever, whatever you want. There's a diversity of opinions and none of them are right. And of course, we've seen the the Christian faith is susceptible to this kind of deconstruction, right? Where people doubt exclusive truth claims and they privilege feelings over thinking. And for this alter reality to work, there can never be unity, right? If we all have our own truths, how could we ever have unity? There can be no unity because metaphysically, that is the physical reality of the world, epistemologically, that is how we know things, and ethically, we all differ. We all have our own opinion because we're all imposing our truth, our own reality upon the world. So we cannot have unity. You have diversity divorced for unity from unity. This is why you can have uh, uh, absurd bumper stickers like the one that says coexist, with a bunch of religious symbols, some of which want to kill the other people, right? Uh, And the reason is because there are religions like Christianity and Islam that are predicated on truth claims. And if they're true, then the other one is false. You can't have two of them opposed and be true. One has to be false. They cannot both be true. Unless, you, of course, you live in clown world, which, by the way, We all now do. But try as you might through totalitarianism or Islam or secular humanism, you cannot blot out the vestiges of the Trinity that are imprinted on creation. Trust me, Satan has been at this game since the very beginning. And there's no way to remove that apart from removing God himself. Interestingly, it's it's Nietzsche who saw this most clearly in his um, poetic treatment of the death of God. And uh, secular, secular humanists have not accounted for a world in which God does not exist because they cannot answer that most fundamental question of how can we have unity in all of the diversity that is in this creation. So for us to have Unity and diversity in our marriages, in the family, in our churches, and of course in the broader church, and even in the state. We must find our our basis for it in the unity and diversity of the triune God of Scripture. He is the only basis for unity anywhere there is diversity. But to understand how to get that unity and diversity, we first need to give an account for how we lost it how is it that the world became so fragmented so disunified did God create it that way if God is a loving community of three persons that have existed eternally in harmony as one why would he create a world that is so diverse and fragmented that we can't be unified well he didn't of course and the Sunday school answer to disunity is, 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 of course, sin. 
the original creation and, and we the crown of that creation being made in his image perfectly showed forth that unity and diversity. But amid the destructive curse of sin was a separation from God in death. We were now separated from the source of our life, the triune God, and no longer even able to sustain a relationship with him, being banished from his presence. When that communion bond that we had with the one triune God was severed because of sin, that death followed after that. And not just a physical death, a death that's being separated from God spiritually also resulted in fragmentation with ourselves. We're no longer whole. We are broken. We're not an integrated person. And that means that we'll have disunity among our relationships and even in our relationship with the creation around us. Before, the creation welled up under, its, under Adam's rule. It did what he said to do. It bore fruit. But in the curse, God said that it would no longer do that. He would tirelessly work and the fruit that would come would often be brambles and thorns. And, it, and the same goes for the relationship that existed. No longer would they live in harmony and work together as husband and wife for the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. But her desire would be for him and he would rule over her. There would be disunity in the most fundamental relationship of human society, the marriage. Sometimes this is called the exodus or the exit of man from his unity with God in communion with the triune God of Scripture. But, but of course, that, that isn't the end of the story. God didn't just leave it at Genesis 3. He provided a way for us to become reintegrated, to make us one again. He had always planned to overcome this problem by sending his son to take on flesh and unite in him God and man. When the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son of God, came to earth and he took to himself a reasonable body in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he was reuniting God and man. That's what we celebrate in Christmas. That's what we celebrate in the birth of Christ. Is God coming and taking on flesh to dwell among us, reuniting, that is, bringing unity between God and man that was fractured in the fall. The, the incarnation is absolutely vital for our recovery of the unity in diversity. I want us to think carefully through the implications of the incarnation. In a very mysterious and sacramental way, Jesus unites in one person two natures. Full divinity and full humanity. It doesn't become a mix of both. It's not as if it's 50% God, 50% man. They come together and they make this new divinized human. That's not what's happening at all. The Chalcedonian Creed says this, that 
we confess the two distinct natures as one and the same Christ. Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures. Inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it possible that we can be in relationship with God? How is it possible that we who are so diverse can have unity? How, and how could we overcome what led to our disunity, which was enmity with God? Well, that all happened in the person of Jesus Christ. He came, and in His own body, He reconciled God and man. He made us one. Now, there remained work for the Son to accomplish, but it begins with the Incarnation. And it would never be possible without it. God the Son left His home in heaven to come to earth and save His people and to bring them back to God. It is in Christ that we have union with God. That work of redemption would not be complete until He died by offering up a perfect life and sacrifice as a substitute for those He came to save from their sin. And that satisfied the penalty of justice that God's righteousness required. And it liberated us from sin's dominion, restoring again that communion bond so that we are reconciled to God and we're finally at peace. That means we have unity with Him. This work of recreation, just as in the original creation, was thoroughly Trinitarian. God the Father planned this recreation. And He sent His Son to accomplish it. The Son comes and accomplishes it. And then perfectly executes the Father's plan to save His people from their sins. And then He returns to His Father. And it is the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son who takes the work of Christ and applies it to your heart. Uniting you to the Son and bringing you back to the Father. So putting this all together, we're now in a better position to answer the question, what is the basis for unity? We're a diverse people. Each of us is from different backgrounds and generations. We have all of us very different likes and dislikes. We have varied tastes and preferences. Some of us have different political views. How can we preserve our differences and yet have unity as a body? How can a husband and wife do the same? Joining in marriage as one flesh does not obliterate the difference between man and woman, nor does it flatten or erase our personalities. So how can we have unity in our marriages while maintaining diversity? How can we be self-differentiated and yet remain connected? It all must go back to the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. Unity is possible because God the Son came at the Father's sending to save His people from the fragmentation of sin. The Spirit is the continued bond that 
an assurance of the possibility of unity. He supplies the resources that maintains and strengthens the bonds of our unity, namely Christ. He makes our union with Christ fresh so that through Him we have access to the Father who is the fountainhead of our unity. And that that means that if we have been united to Christ, we have also been united to all others in His body, the church. That's exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17, that we would all be one. That out of the diversity of peoples He died to save, we would be united together to form one body. Speaking of the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, which we may say extends to all different groups that have enmity together, such as blacks and whites and men and women and poor and rich and whatever, whatever dichotomy you could come up with where there is enmity and we desire unity, you could read this and see that Jesus is the only one who brings it. Paul says in Ephesians 2.11, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross." thereby killing the hostility. And He came and He preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, the Trinitarian salvation is the basis for our unity. Paul says that it is through Jesus that you have access by one Spirit to the Father. We who have been reconciled to God in His body on the cross have also been reconciled to one another. And what divided us before has been broken down. And in its place stands a new creation. Which we may call the church. And that's it. That's the whole program. Unity. That's what He came to bring. It's what He sent His Spirit to maintain. Out of the one, out of the many, one. The basis of our unity is our union with Christ. And if we have been united to Him, then we have also, like it or not, been united to all His people. There are no isolated Christians. There is no possibility of salvation apart from the church. 
Calvin once said, you cannot have God as your father unless you first have the church as your mother. Jesus died to make us one, to unite us together in one new humanity, restored to its fullest potential as image bearers of the God who is three in one, a unity in diversity. But I want to I give one caveat before we before I close, and next week we're going to be looking at maintaining this unity. How do we maintain it? And then how do we strengthen it and defend it? In the coming weeks we'll look at that. But I want, to, I want you to notice one thing. Unity is not uniformity. The hallmark of many cults is not unity, but uniformity. They cannot tolerate diversity, so all distinctions must be flattened out. Everyone must look and act and be the same. But this is Unitarian. It's not Trinitarian. God the Son has personal distinctions that God the Father does not have. Namely, begottenness. Yet they are united. We have a solid foundation to build on. That here at Hope Church and in the broader church throughout the world, we can be joined together as one because we already have been in Christ. Father, may we never forget what the, the incarnation and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the sending of your Spirit to make us one. That that is the basis for our unity in diversity. Help us to realize it. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.